We had an excursus last week as we were not in the book of Ephesians, but instead did a two-part message from 1 Kings. So tonight we're back in Ephesians, and we are picking up where we left off. Hopefully you remember uh, two weeks ago, we were in the section of Ephesians 5, 18 to 21, that had to deal with the issue of being filled with the Spirit. And in verse 18, it said, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And I emphasize the fact that to be filled with the Spirit does not mean that we have the Holy Spirit from our tip of our toe to the top of our head, but there is a corollary between being drunk and being filled with the Spirit, which seems like an odd corollary the first that you look at it. But the point is that a person who is drunk is under the influence of the alcohol. It means that as a result of their being drunk, that their behavior changes, their attitude changes, their conduct changes as a result of their drunkenness. Well, that's the basis of the comparison. A person who's filled with the Spirit is a different person from what they normally are. But when they're filled with the Spirit, they have a boldness. Uh, They have the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, faith, meekness, temperance, self-control. So they are evidencing the fruit of the Spirit, and that fruit is seen in verses 19, 20, and 21, where it says, and these are the results of being filled with the Spirit, addressing one another, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father, and then lastly, uh, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. The Holy Spirit brings the child of God into a unique relationship to God. It is this relationship to God which is stressed throughout. So the focal point of the passage in verses 18 to 21 is the way in which this conduct manifests itself in relationship to God. For notice that to be filled with the Spirit, we are to dress one another in psalms and hymns, spiritual songs, singing melody to the Lord with your heart. So the object ultimately of this singing, of this making melody, and even our talk is uh, with the Lord in view, uh, to bring honor and glory to Him giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father. So again, you see, God is in view. In our giving of thanks, it is because we recognize that God is the source of all good things. Every good and perfect gift cometh from above. And we are to constantly be giving thanks unto God. That moves us then into verse 21, submitting to one another. And the motivation is that of being out of reverence for Christ out of reverence for Christ. So the key verse is Ephesians 5.21, which says, submitting to one another out of a reverence for Christ. I have a quotation from W.H. Honer in his commentary. It writes, and I quote, this verse not only concludes the section that began in 5.15, but it is also a hinge verse to the present section of 5.22-6.9. The present context is very much related to the previous context. For only believers filled by the Spirit are able to please the Lord by fulfilling their duties and are able to live blameless lives in close and continual contact with their family or employment relationships. 
So these relationships are to be lived ultimately to the honor and glory of God, and that is what is in view. Again, quoting from Honer, and uh, I, I uh, put the sources, and this may look confusing, but it's because Honer has written uh, two different commentaries on uh, the book of Ephesians. Uh, I just would tell you that that is very, very common, uh, that uh, authors author uh, their commentaries in a number of series, some much more technical and uh, some much more light and applicational, etc. That's why they, they write in different series. So uh, I'm using two of his commentaries in different series. Anyway, I quote, in these next verses, Paul discusses three sets of relationships, wife and husband, children and parents, and slaves and masters. In each instance, the one who is to submit is discussed first, namely the wife, the children, the slaves. Paul then discusses the responsibility of those in position of authority, namely the husband, the parents, and the masters. End quote. So as we unpack this portion of scripture, I point out first, note the relationships that are presented with regard to submission. Wives are to submit to their own husbands, children are to obey their parents, and bond servants are to obey their earthly masters. Second, the responsibility of those in authority. Husbands are to love their wives, fathers are not to provoke their children to anger, and masters are to do the same and stop their threatening. So they are not to be oppressive in their mastery over their slaves. And third, the exercising of authority under the auspices of Christ. Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So we, we find out that in this exercise of authority, we are to be submissive to Christ. We can't exercise our authority in whatever that is, whether that be parenting, whether that be in a husband-wife relationship, whether that even be employee to uh, employer, that in every one of these relationships, one must conduct themselves in keeping with the ultimate authority, which is that of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are to understand that authority is delegated. It is not autonomous. We do not self-rule, but all authority is delegated authority, and all authority has the responsibility to ultimately recognize the true and ultimate authority, which is Jesus Christ. So, in uh, Ephesians 6, 9, Masters, do the same to them, stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him, so that God is going to judge both. The point is, whether that be master or slave, both will stand before him, and the position is irrelevant. Uh, the master is not going to have a preferred position because he's in a place of authority, but rather he's going to be judged as the slave is for the right exercise of their duties and responsibilities. So the theme is tonight, we submit to and exercise authority in order to be pleasing to Christ. That's what I want to emphasize and uh, I'm going to be primarily in this section tonight about uh, husbands and wives, 
uh, session, uh, section I'm sure that you're uh, pretty well familiar with, but I'm going to attack, uh, tackle it in a little different way. I'm not going to go into a lot of the practical nuances of submission, et cetera, et cetera, but rather I, I want to focus on the theology. I want to focus upon the motivation. I want to focus on what ultimately marriage is to represent. Marriage isn't just about being happy. Marriage isn't just about successfully living together. Marriage is intended to bring honor and glory to God and reflect our obedience to him. It is one way in which we can demonstrate as Christians that we recognize the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ in our lives. It's a very practical way in which we demonstrate our commitment to Christ as we order our marriages the way in which he instructs us to order them. So we begin with A, wives are to, be, uh, to submit to their own husbands out of a desire to please Christ. Ephesians 5.22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now what is interesting is that the word submit is not actually found in verse 22. Uh, so much is made out of that statement in 522, and uh, rarely do people even understand that the word doesn't even appear in the Greek in 522. Rather, the thought of submit is carried over from verse 21. That's why verse 21 is such an important verse. The context supplies the word in verse 22. So the submission... And then it's going to give you three examples of submission. It's going to give you the example of, of, of wives to husbands. It's going to give you the example of children to parents. And it's going to give you the example of a slave to uh, the master. But here, we need to understand that this is uh, a general principle of how we are to live. Number three, what we want to focus on is that submission to one's husband is actually done out of his desire to be submissive to Christ. For it tells us in verse 22, wives, submit your, to your own husbands as to the Lord. As to the Lord. Again, I appreciate the way in which Honer puts this, and he says, and I quote, in other words, since the Lord has instructed wives to submit to their husbands by doing so, they are also submissive to the Lord. Uh, I would say ultimately they are submissive to the Lord. So the idea here is that this is a God-given responsibility that is accepted, and as it's accepted, it's done so out of a desire to honor and glorify and please the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the motivation. That's the motivation. Uh, again, down below, quoting again from Honer, Paul instructs the wives to submit because the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. And as the church submits to Christ, so should the wife be to her husband. The imagery of the church being a spouse of Christ is in view. Moving on. There is a correlation. There is a correlation in that a wife submits to her husband in the manner that the church submits to Christ. Or notice verse 24, now as the church submits to Christ. So there's, there's this comparison. This is this idea that everyone is submissive 
to someone else, and all of us are submissive to Christ. And just as the church is submissive to Christ, so the wife is to be submissive to her husband, which in turn is actually being submissive to Christ. Next, five. There is to be no distinction between sacred and secular, verse 24. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. I can't tell you the myriads of things that have been written on that simple statement, in everything, in everything. We need to understand that when it is saying in everything, it's talking about all aspects of life. It's talking about an umbrella of things. That everything ultimately comes under the authority of Jesus Christ. And we can't divide our lives into secular and into spiritual. But everything in life is ultimately spiritual because even the way I go about my work whether or not I am honest in my labors, whether or not I'm doing a full day's work, has spiritual connotations to it. Whether I lie, whether I cheat, whatever it is that I do, there is ultimately a responsibility before God. And so it is saying that, again, you can't compartmentalize your, your lives into areas of which you are going to be submissive and other areas in which you're not going to be submissive. I'll slow down as I move on, but I want to lay the groundwork. Six, thus the wife is to respect her husband, Ephesians 5.33. However, let each one of you wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. I know that many people think that it says that wives are to love their husbands and husbands are to love their wives, but it really says that, that wives are to respect their husbands, and the reason that it says that is, A, to respect is a form of the same word used in verse 21. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So as we reverence and as we, and a literal translation of that would be fear, with re, but it has the idea of reverence and respect, so too the wife is to have this fear in the sense of reverence and respect for her husband, to appreciate the position and role that he occupies. Now, as an aside, I won't go into a tremendous amount of detail, but when I do premarital counseling, I'm actually in this, this section, and I emphasize the difference between the role of the wife and the husband and the whole aspect of loving uh, one another. And uh, in my understanding of loving one another, it has the idea of putting that person first. It has the idea of they're the most important person in your life, if you will. That there's to be this unique dedication of the husband to his wife in which there is no one that is more important than she is. But those of you who have children will find out, and husbands, you will find out if you're not a dad yet, that when the kids come into the house, guess who takes priority? 
the children do. And there are a lot of times in which dad has to take second place. And you will find that if mothers have to make a choice between their children and their husbands, many times it's the children that are going to be valued and prized more than their husbands. And actuality is that's biblical. That's biblical. Husbands are to love their wives. They come first. But in the relationship, wives are to respect their husbands. We're not going to go into more detail than that because I, I don't want to lose sight of what I want to be trying to achieve tonight. B, husbands are to exercise authority and submission to Christ in following his example. Ephesians 5.25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. <clears throat> now, there is a comparison between Christ's union to the church with the husband's union with his wife, utilizing the image of the body. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body. So it's important to understand that now we're using a uh, synonym for church, which is the body of Christ, which we all are very familiar with. We know that that's a, a way in which the scriptures refer to the body of Christ. But you need to understand, and you may even, if you, you know, would want to mark up your Bible, you want to draw an arrow between that and verse 28 in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. That is a strange statement if you, if you cut it off from the context. All right. So if you understand that Christ loves the church, the church is his body, then you understand why it says that husbands are to love their wives, which is their own body. It's talking about a union that takes place. There is a union of Christ and the church, and there's a union of husband and wife. And that union is being of one body. Repeatedly, in the Old Testament, it refers to being of one flesh, the husband and the wife. They are of one flesh. They, they are inseparable. They are indivisible. Moving on. Husbands should be seeking to save their wives in a similar manner in which Christ saved the church. Notice verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, it's easy for us to understand how Christ is the savior of the church. We understand how he gave himself for the church. We understand how he made the sacrificial commitment of dying on the cross and rising again. But now we find out that as Christ is the savior of the church. The husband is to be the savior of the wife. Now that has to be unpacked. In what way is the husband the savior of the wife? In what way is he to deliver her? Well, 
in the context. Three, the husbands save their wives as being spiritual leaders. Thus, they save them from spiritual harm and God's disfavor. That is the husband's primary role, to save them in the sense of protecting them from spiritual harm and God's disfavor. In the context, Christ sanctifies the church through the word of God, Ephesians 5, 25 and 26. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And now this is the way in which he saves the church that he might sanctify her, sending her apart, having cleansed her by the washing of water with his word. So there's this imagery of through the word of God, Christ sets the church apart. And through the word of God, the church is purified as the word of God is believed and obeyed. Jesus, in his high priestly prayer, prayed in John chapter 17. He's praying for the disciples. He's praying to God the Father, and he says this, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So Jesus is dedicating the disciples And it makes it clear in John chapter 17, he's praying not only for these, but for all those that would believe through their word, he's praying for us as well. Sanctify them through the truth, your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, now notice this in verse 19, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in the truth. When it says that he sanctified himself, that means he separated himself to the word of God. He brought himself under the submission of God's word. He dedicated himself to knowing and teaching the word of God. He met the temptations that Satan threw at him as a result of of, uh, quoting and adhering to the word of God. So the word of God is primary. Be in like manner The husband must devote himself to know and live out the word of God for the benefit of his wife and ultimately his family. That becomes the primary duty of being the spiritual leader, to dedicate ourselves as husbands to the word of God to know the word of God, to live out the word of God, to be obedient to the word of God, to conduct ourselves in keeping with the word of God, to recognize God's authority over us, and then to help our family understand the word of God, to obey the word of God, to to live under the authority of the word of God. So let me give you a practical example or two of this, because it's not usually the way in which we talk about the husband and wife's roles. In the Old Testament, in the book of Numbers, we have, an, we have some instructions 
And the instructions help us to understand the way in which the, the husband is supposed to save his wife in the sense of protecting her, in the sense of watching over her, in the sense of keeping her. Numbers chapter 30, verse 6. If she marries a husband, while under her vows or any thoughtless utterance of her lips by which she has bound herself, so the situation is if a woman is married and she makes a vow to the Lord, but it is a thoughtless vow, it's a foolish vow, it's not a good vow, it's a vow that she shouldn't have made. Verse 7, and her husband hears of it and says nothing to her on the day that he hears, then her vows shall stand and her pledges by which she has bound herself shall stand. But if on the day that her husband comes to hear of it, he opposes her, then he makes void her vow that was on her and the thoughtless utterance of her lips by which she bowed herself and the Lord will forgive her. So the husband has the veto power over the wife if she makes some kind of commitment to the Lord that for whatever reason was a foolish commitment. It does go into examples of what that is, but the point here is that even if she's making a commitment to the Lord, if the husband hears of that and says, wow, you don't want to do that, He can nullify her vow and the Lord will forgive her. The Lord won't hold her accountable for that, for she is under her husband's authority. Moving on, verse 9. But any vow of a widow or of a divorced woman, anything by which she has bound herself, shall stand against her. And if she vowed in her husband's house or bound herself by a pledge with an oath, and her husband heard of it and said nothing to her and did not oppose her, then all her vows shall stand, and every pledge by which she bound herself shall stand. But again, but if her husband makes them null and void on the day that he hears them, then whatever proceeds out of her lips concerning her vows or concerning her pledge of herself shall not stand. Her husband has made them void, and the Lord will forgive her. Any vow and any binding oath to afflict herself her husband may establish, or her husband may make void. But if her husband says nothing to her from day to day, then he establishes all her vows, all her pledges that are upon her. He has established them because he had said nothing to her on the day that he heard of them. So the husband needs to be wise. The husband needs to be discerning. The husband needs to know the word of God so that if he hears his wife make a commitment that is inappropriate, that he steps up to the plate and preserves her and keeps her by this vow. Now that may seem a little ethereal to you, so let's get much more practical. Genesis chapter 3, you all know this section. Adam in the garden. Failed as a husband in protecting Eve from the serpent's, that should not be life, that be, should be lie. From the serpent's lie, and eating of the forbidden fruit. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you should not eat of any tree in the garden? 
And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the tree in the garden. But God said, you should not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And so she gave some to her husband, he words, who was with her, and he ate. Adam failed miserably by not intervening in that situation. He failed miserably by not exercising headship. He failed miserably in letting his wife do combat with Satan rather than he doing the combat with Satan. It was his responsibility. It was his role to stand up to the evil one. He was to be the spiritual leader, and he failed. And he failed miserably. And not only did he not protect her, but he ends up eating with her as well. So we need to understand that there is this role of a protection that is very, very important. Number four, there is great joy in sacrificing ourselves for the benefit of our wives, even as it brought great joy to Christ to sacrifice himself for our benefit. Verse 27, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor. This is talking about Christ and the result of his having died for the church, that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So that should be our goal, that our wives would be holy without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. For the idea here is that in loving them, we are doing good for ourselves. In loving them, we are actually accomplishing what God would have us to do. He who loves his wife loves himself. There is not an incongruity of this self-sacrifice. Christ was exalted because of his obedience. Because of his submission to God. Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, who being the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but took upon himself the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of man. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God hath also highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. In the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is exalted because of his sacrificial love that he demonstrated in willing to humble himself, willing to be a sacrifice, and as a result is praised and honored and glorified by God. 
The greatest service you can render to God is being a good husband and a good father. That is praiseworthy. That exalts the Lord Jesus Christ. That reflects the kind of relationship that is to exist among God's people. And then we have this verse that almost seems to come out of the blue, blue, number five. Thus the duties that are associated with children being under the care and protection of their parents is replaced with the wife's uh, husband relationship. Ephesians 5.31 Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. There's that one flesh idea of one body. Where is that quoted from? Genesis. Who's it said to? Adam and Eve. Doesn't something strike you a bit odd? Right, they have no parents. And yet, this is what is said to Adam and Eve. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. All of these verses are talking about relationships. And the ultimate relationship is not father and child or mother and child. The ultimate relationship is husband and wife. For it reflects the relationship that is to be had with Christ and the church. Therefore, you need to forsake father and mother and cleave unto your, your spouse. So let me go back to that aspect of love and respect. All right? Um, if a relationship is going to work, wives have to know that they have first place in the relationship. And many times there are situations in which the husband's mother and the wife's interests are pitted against each other. And it's not good, but sometimes, unfortunately, people even throw out tests just to see who they're going to be allegiant to. Are they going to be faithful to their wife or are they going to be faithful to their mother? Who are they going to choose? Who's, whose side are they going to be on? All right. Well, husbands, you need to love your wives and you need to be committed to, to, to them and you need to leave father and mother and you need to cleave unto them and you need to put them first. Now, obviously, this is a very limited statement. We still want to be caring for our parents, etc., etc. I hope you understand that. But on the converse side, what I often see is wives that don't respect their husbands. They don't value their opinion. They don't appreciate their input. And they have a tendency to run to dad for advice. And they hold up dad. And they go to him and they say, dad, what do you think? Dad, what, 
should I do? And all too often, dad interjects himself into the marriage and begins making decisions for his daughter and her husband rather than saying, honey, you're married. You need to sit down and talk to your husband about this and about what he would have you to do. So respect is very important and love is very important and the distinction in a marriage is very important. So six, the husband and wife have a new endearing relationship that is to be in keeping with the union of Christ and the church. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a mystery. It's profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. What is the application? What, why it, what is this mystery of Christ in the church and of husband and wife? The idea is that a person who comes to Christ has new relationships, new responsibilities, new duties. Their old life is forsaken and their new life is a life of walking with Christ. No longer living as they did before they knew Christ. But now living a totally new life, having known Christ and being identified with Christ and living for Christ. In like manner, a husband and wife, one day become married, enter into a whole new realm of relationship. And they are no longer to be acting like single people. They're no longer to be acting like two independent individuals that are just cohabitating, that are just living together. But their whole relationship is to change. It is to be entirely different than it was before they were married. And for the relationship to be what God really wants it to be, not only do they have to be married, but they have to be two believers. For the purpose of the marriage is ultimately to show forth the relationship of Christ and his church, and non-believers can't do that. So our ultimate goal of why we want our marriages to be strong and our marriages to be healthy is yes, we want to have a peaceful marriage. We want to have love for one another. That's a great byproduct. But it's that, it's a byproduct. The primary emphasis is on having a godly marriage in which the husband is exercising true godly leadership in knowing the word, in living the word, in obeying the word, and teaching the word to his family, and in so doing, saving his family from a lot of hardship, and a lot of misery, and a lot of heartache. He used to be their deliverer, 
She's to respect him and admire that commitment and that desire and believe that he really wants what is best and, and I can trust him. So let me just say to you, if you're single tonight, if you're married, it's too late, but if you're single, by all means, don't marry somebody that you can't respect. Somebody that you can't look up to. Somebody who will not be the spiritual leader in your home. Don't say, I'll change him. But rather, of all the qualities that you can look for, look for someone who really wants to honor Christ, who wants to live for him. That's the greatest foundation that you can have. Men, look for women that want to honor the Lord Jesus Christ. That demonstrate a commitment to do what is pleasing and honoring and glorifying to him. And if you find two people like that and you're living your lives that way, you're going to be happy and you're going to be blessed and you're going to appreciate each other. Uh, I use a, another verse, uh, another portion of scripture in uh, Psalm 37, trust, delight, commit, and rest. If you can trust someone, you can delight in them. The more you delight in them, the more committed you are. And the more committed you are, the more you are at rest. And it's foundational to our relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is a passage that's teaching us that we are to be recognizing the authority of Jesus Christ in our marriages. And both husband and wives have to submit to that authority. We are not independent of Christ's authority. Husband and wives have different roles, but they have the same ultimate master, which is Christ, with the same ultimate goal, which is to bring honor and glory to him. Let's pray. Almighty God, help us. Help us to live under your authority. Help us to understand that in all relationships, that ultimately it comes down to your authority, that you have established the authorities in this world. And so in submitting to them, we ultimately submit to you. Lord, be honored and be glorified in our marriages. Lord, help us to conduct ourselves in the right way. Help us to be faithful. Help us to be people who are keeping our vows as they typify some of the very basic ways in which we need to be faithful and committed to one another. But Lord, ultimately may we realize that in these vows, what we are really being faithful to and, and why we make them in a setting in which we're calling upon you is because ultimately these vows are made to you. And ultimately, Lord, we realize that without the filling of your spirit, without being controlled by your spirit, we will fail. We can't have the marriages that you want us to have 
Maybe we can be happy. But Lord, we really can't glorify you without your spirit ruling in our hearts and lives, causing us to be conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus. May that always be our goal. And as a result, Lord, may your name be praised and may families be saved, be delivered. May so many of the harms and the hardships that the world experiences, may we be preserved from because we are faithfully adhering to the scriptures. And you are blessing, not just in the sense of reward, but in the very, very conduct that we are engaging in. We are reflecting the conduct of the Lord Jesus Christ and how beneficial that is to us and how that saves us. So Lord, help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.